This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalife. I feel like your your background with your family, especially with your with your dad, has like a huge component in terms of that tipping point, um, you know, for your start in entrepreneurship, right? And he obviously came from a from a different industry, but you clearly saw those pain points, and you know, he obviously believed in in uh, your first business was one of the first investors. Um, curious how how much that actually had an impact in the early days of you becoming a, a startup founder. I think my father being an entrepreneur had a huge impact and I think really inspired me to be an entrepreneur. And I think I grew up with it. And I think part of being an entrepreneur, I think, as you know, is also having a big risk mindset. Mm. And I remember my father had an expression. He's like, you know, if my business fails, I'm okay. He's like, I can be happy sleeping under a bridge in Paris. <laughs> that was his expression. And I do think that really stuck with me. And he was also a big innovator. Mm. He was in the pump manufacturing industry, so very different industry. But even there, I remember he was developing a new air diaphragm pump, electromechanical pump. He got a patent on it. And yeah. he was always trying to do new things. And so I think that really just stuck with me, you know, both kind of the desire and willingness to take the risk and then the desire to innovate. And so to me, I think it just seemed normal, you know, when you grow up around an entrepreneur. It, and I think like a lot of kids, I aspire to be like my dad. And I do remember that when I was a little kid, it seemed kind of daunting mm. because I would go to his office with him. And at the time it was in Germany, but you know, it just seemed like a big office and all these big people. And I think a lot of me felt like, oh, I can never do this. You know, like I can never be as big as my dad, but I wanted to be. Mm. I guess that also like from, from, a, from a young age, you know, you go there, it's a little bit intimidating to your point, but it's a, a bit of a driving force. Right, you kind of get competitive within yourself. You're like, well, this is this is kind of where I want to reach, and then you see it for the first time, and you're like, ah, oh, this is not as, you know, as, as daunting as I once thought. Yeah, well, actually, it took a while. I mean, it seemed daunting for many years. Hmm. You know, like doing it on my own versus watching my father do it, and I think it took quite a few years to kind of get comfortable as an entrepreneur. Yeah, I mean, as, as part of getting comfortable, though, like, and, and I'm sure as we continue this conversation, people will get a, a really good understanding of the whole story. But I, and I was telling you, uh, we were at 1871, where I first heard like the, the Godard Abel story uh, from kind of the, the, the starting point to, to where you're at now with G2 and, and building 3Kit. I think what's, what's super interesting is, you know, across three startups now, I mean, you've exited one to Salesforce, another to Oracle. One was also acquired by CA, I think at IPO, which was the first, uh, which was the first company. I mean, that by itself seems daunting as a first time CEO. So when you were first starting out, what were the kind of don'ts or do's that you learned uh, along the way? Yeah. And uh, really, Big Machines was the first company I built from scratch. You know, Niku, I was involved. You know, we sold a smaller startup to them, but it wasn't really my thing. And I think the, probably the first hard lesson I learned at Big Machines was not to go too fast. Mm. And we were able to raise a bunch of capital in our first year. We wound up raising over $20 million. And frankly, in hindsight, we just started spending it way too fast and, you know, kind of going ahead of product market fit and we didn't really have product market fit. We tried to scale sales and marketing. And then frankly, for a couple of years, we had to cut way back and right. scale the company back down from 70 people to 20 people. And that was probably the first hard lesson I learned as an entrepreneur, you know, even if you raise the capital, if you're not yet getting consistent customer traction and you don't have the product market fit, then it's better to slow down and, and wait till the market's ready. Mm. Yeah. And you also, I mean, one of the things that you talk about is really kind of climbing that summit or seeing the summit through. And 
it's difficult because if I recall, you raised that 20 million from John Scully, right? Is that, was that the case? He was the first outside angel investor and he was, you know, famous back in that day, you know, having been the CEO of Apple and somewhat infamous for having, you know, helped to push out Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. But John was a very famous man in our industry. And then once he invested, this was the first internet wave, dot com wave. And once he invested, it was easy to get a bunch of others to invest. Right. Father invested also Bob Kraft, you know, was famous for being the owner of the New England Patriots. And so I got a bunch of kind of famous wealthy people that were also excited about the internet and what the company Big Machines could do to help companies like my father sell online. And I think that premise was correct, you know, it was 20 years ago and e-commerce, and I think I saw during COVID, e-commerce was up 62%. And, uh, you know, but what I didn't expect though was a lot of this stuff actually takes 20 years. And I remember at that same time in 2000, Amazon, after the dot-com bubble burst, you know, people were talking about Amazon's going bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And uh, Amazon was seen as a big credit risk. And so I think that's probably also what I've learned over the many years. You know, a lot of these trends that do seem inevitable when you're an entrepreneur and you're like, oh, this technology, it's going to come to life. But I think the reality is sometimes it can take many years or even decades you know, to come to full fruition. And then I think it is that you know peak mindset of really being committed to that peak and climbing that peak and, you know, just being committed to, Hey, it may be a long journey, but if you really believe in it and you're climbing the right peak, you know, it will come to life. You just, you got to stick with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, so, so when I was listening to, to the fact that part of that race came from John Scully, I'm like, man, Godard is a savage. Like you go to the guy that literally fired, you know, fired Steve Jobs infamously. Um, and then you, you know, you raise the money, but, it more interestingly is like after that 20 mil, I think you got to a point where, you know, you burn through the 19, you're left with a million and you're looking with your co-founders. You're like, I don't even know what, I mean, should we continue? And I, I feel like that infliction point, so many founders get, get to that stage, right? I think uh, Reed Hoffman talks about it as the, the Valley of the shadow um, yeah. and kind of getting past that hump. And it's very difficult, right? Like, do we pull the plug? Do we continue? Uh, it's our first venture. And if I don't, what happens to my credibility? Like you're going through all these thoughts, Take me back to like that, that point in time. And what, what was that voice internally that said, Godard, just keep going, man. We're almost there. We'll see what happens. I mean, there's a million left. At this point, you're like, screw it. Let's just see what happens. <laughs> yeah, no, that was 2003. You know, and as you said, we burned through almost all 20 million. You know, we had just over a million left in the bank. And really, I was sitting down with my co-founder, Chris Schutz. And he was my best friend from MIT. So we also had a very close personal relationship, you know, over quite a few years now. And, and I think it was really, and I think that's really important to have a business partner because ultimately I think that would give me the strength more than any of my own thoughts or beliefs, but we both collectively, we just felt like, wow, you know, we, what we really believed in was our early customers and we didn't have that many. And we had about a dozen manufacturers that had successfully implemented big machines. They were getting great ROI by moving their sales online. And so we just thought, you know, wow, it's still really hard to sell because most manufacturers weren't ready for the cloud. They weren't ready for online selling. But we just believed, hey, if it's working for these 12, you know, eventually we can get to hundreds, we can get to thousands. But, you know, we just have to persevere. So instead of pulling the plug, we, you know, we did scale it all the way down to 20 people at that point mm-hmm. and made it to the point where we could be, you know, we had just over a million in revenue and we had line of sight then to a plan to getting profitable or at least getting the cash flow break even. And we were able to do that over the next year or two, actually get to the point where we were cash flow positive. And then from there, we grew it organically. But, but I, I do think a lot of entrepreneurs, you get to that moment, right? It really tests your conviction. And I think at that time, I had a lot of fear. I had a lot of doubt. I didn't know if I was making the right decision. 
Um, but, but again, I think having that co-founder or having that common belief really is what, what pulled us through. Yeah. And it's fun. I mean, it's interesting too, that you talk about kind of the scaling aspect, you know, if I'm not mistaken, like big machines got up to probably 50 million in, in revenue from a, from a run rate perspective, you were about 300 people. That's also a big challenge, right? Like knowing how quick to scale or taking it kind of in, in tranches. But when you're in the, in the midst of things, you know, you just raised a series A, a series B, knowing how to pace that, that, that scale, especially when everybody around you is moving so quickly can be very difficult. So curious, like if you now, I mean, obviously as a being 20 years now building these SaaS companies, when you look back, what was, what could you have done differently from a scaling perspective to do it kind of more, more, more tapered or, or more gradually? Yeah. And I do think having a feeling for timing and when to invest, when to cut back is, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's part science, part, you know, obviously you look at the numbers, but I think mm-hmm. in a startup, there's so many unknowns, especially about how quickly our customers going to adopt or now, you know, we had an economic shock with COVID. So right. there's other things happening where oftentimes you're going to be wrong, you know, but I think now probably the biggest thing, I mean, the, the best indicator clearly is the customers, right? And, are the customers signing up? Are they spending? Are they renewing? How quickly are they growing with you? Because ultimately that's the only certain thing, you know, because investors, it comes and goes and there's cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I do think you develop a feel for the business. And I think at Big Machines after that period, you know, we developed a good feel. And from there we grew it organically. And so we were basically paced by our customers, by our revenue. And we went all the way from 1 million to 50 million revenue with positive cash flow. And in some ways that made it easier, right? Because we kind of just knew, okay, you know, if next year we can take in 4 million in revenue, that's what we can spend. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it does get harder. And frankly, you know, now building G2, I've just kind of gone through you know, an interesting cycle again. And G2, frankly, we were able to raise 100 million. And I think obviously as an entrepreneur, it got a lot easier because, you know, we had two successes, two successful exits. And now with G2, Investors give you a lot more trust. You're able to raise a lot more capital. But I also say every day you have to re-earn that trust because they're obviously trusting you with it because they believe you're going to be a good steward of the capital. You're going to build a good business. And, and frankly, I think at G2 also now in hindsight, right? By last year, two years ago, maybe we went a bit too fast. You know, we did two acquisitions. And I think actually both products we acquired are amazing. So we acquired Siftree, which is now G2 Track. We also acquired Advocately, which is now G2 Review Automation. So both products are doing really well. But we also, you know, ramped up to, I think, from, you know, 100 to almost 400 people in a couple of years. And it was exciting, wow. but we're kind of doing the hyper growth, as Reid Hoffman calls it. Yeah. Um, or, yeah, blitz scaling. <laughs> great book, you know, but then obviously economic reality shifted. And even yeah. before COVID, we started realizing late last year, you know, last year our goal was to double revenue. We weren't going to make that. Mm. And then obviously this year COVID happened and there's no way we're going to double revenue in times of COVID. So we did have to cut back. You know, and we cut back about 15% in terms of our people, which, you know, was, was painful and especially, you know, felt terrible putting them out there in a, in a bad economy. Yeah. Uh, but I do feel good now where we are, you know, I do, I do think we're much stronger for it. So I think, you know, long story short, I think in some ways I'm still making mistakes 20 years later, but I also think I've learned that, Hey, you're not going to be perfect, right? As an entrepreneur, as a business leader, you just have to react, right? And when circumstances change, when COVID happens, I think you just accept it and you adapt quickly, um, you know, while keeping that long-term vision, right? Keeping that aspiration for the peak mm-hmm. um, and not getting too deterred, right? There are going to be ups and downs. There's going to be potholes. And even when you look back at all the great entrepreneurs, you know, whether it's Steve Jobs, 
uh, you know, at Apple. And I also remember the stories, you know, like now everyone's like, oh, it was just amazing. But in the 80s, you know, part of the reason he got fired was, you know, he was working on the Macintosh and ultimately a great product, but it was two years late, right? And I think at the beginning, it didn't sell like they expected. And, and most entrepreneurs, you look back, or Jeff Bezos in 2000, everyone was saying he's going to go bankrupt. Mm. Um, and I think the great entrepreneurs, they adapt, they persevere. And then, you know, a few years later, everyone looks back and says, oh, wow, you know, they were genius throughout. But the reality is they made mistakes, right? And But then they adapted quickly and and kept their commitment to climbing their peak and, and ultimately got there. Yeah. It seems like also being a CEO or being a leader, a lot of it is just kind of dealing with conflict, right? And it also adapting and uh, and, and just going through those those peaks and, and, and troughs. Right, like for you, I mean, you went through the, the dot-com uh, boom in 2000, obviously the 08 recession, all those were, were different, you know, times of, of being the CEO of a startup. Um, and I guess obviously it teaches you a lot, but it's never as easy, you know, to your point when you, let's say, you know, you scale back or you downsize a little bit, uh, it's never easy. And, and, and I remember you talking a lot about how important your team is, right? Because especially when you build a very successful company with a great team, those team members eventually follow you. In, in the different startups that, that you start creating. Um, so, so maybe just on that, uh, Godard, like for, for aspiring founders or early stage CEOs listening, what advice would you give them uh, in terms of dealing with that hard conflict that they have to face sometimes? Yeah, and I think you're right, George, there is you know, kind of conflict. In some cases, it's imposed by the market. You know, there's kind of conflict between your growth aspirations yeah. and the market reality, right? And I think a lot of people have been facing that with COVID where mm. you know, I think, what they, you know, what their goals were, what they promised to their investors and to their team, they couldn't fulfill. And then I think it is that that's when that, I think, trusted team, you know, really becomes important. And I mentioned Chris, my co-founder of Big Machines, right? I think the only reason I and we were able to get through that is because we were in it together. And same thing now with G2, you know, we have a really strong leadership team and we're in this together. And frankly, now G2 already feel like we're coming out the other side of it, like June and July growth is accelerating again and it's exciting, but we were able to get through it because we kept the team together and we kept the trust of the team. And I think that's the hard thing as an entrepreneur that people are kind of betting their career on you, you know, investors are betting on you financially. And so keeping that trust in a crisis, I do think that's when as a leader, you're really challenged, you know, cause it's arguably easy when times are good, everything's booming, yeah. everybody loves you, you, right? Everybody wants to follow you, but then when you hit a crisis, and you have to make some hard changes, you have to reset a plan. That's when I think you're really tested as a leader and as a leadership team. And I think your team, ultimately, it's more they feel it, right? Like, are you being, and one of our peak values is authenticity. But I think we've really also tried to dial up the transparency you know, in this COVID crisis, be honest with the team what's happening. Mm. And, you know, and I think that's key to winning their trust, both be authentic, transparent about the challenges, but at the same time, keep pointing towards the peak, the ultimate vision. And that's certainly also true for G2, right? Our ultimate vision is really more of a 30-year vision. And I was very inspired also by Mark Andreessen and his quote, Soft Reading the World, you know, which he first said in 2012. And I still think we're very much in the middle of that, right? Where AI software is automating everything. Software is eating the world. Every business process can be automated with software. And I see G2, we believe our platform can play a huge part in that. And so over 30 years, you know, I think if we persevere, there's almost no way you can't win, mm. you know, but so when you're going through those painful times, right, and you have to adjust and you kind of realize, wow, this is just a few months in a 30 year journey. And, you know, if you keep that longer term perspective, keep the team focused on the vision and the vision actually being more exciting than ever. And that's actually true for us also with COVID. The reality is our web traffic surged 
you know, in March on G2 and G2, you know, being a big software review platform, but we found many businesses all of a sudden needed software. You know, and they needed a lot of businesses in tech. We all have zoom, mm -hmm. right? We all have Slack, Yeah. And, but most businesses didn't. And so it was actually an exciting time where we could help, you know, thousands of companies find apps like zoom, find apps like Slack that have thousands of great reviews. So, you know, their own businesses could get through this crisis. And I think keeping a team focused on that, Hey, you know, we are in a, creating an essential service and essential platform that will help every business person get better. And, you know, that vision is going to be exciting. It's going to be realized over many years. That way, when you hit a crisis, you know, the team also sees, Oh, okay, we're adapting. They're do we're doing some difficult things, but, you know, but they see that, wow, this is, you know, it, ultimately we're going to get to a great place. Hmm. Yeah. And if, if we, if we like even go before that, like when you first sold to Oracle, right? Like that was the first kind of big M&A, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then I think you joined as a senior advisor. You spent probably a year there. How was that feeling for you? Because I, I mean, I've asked a couple of founders who had, you know, very successful exits, big exits to, to notable names. And oftentimes it isn't what, what most would think who are not entrepreneurs. You know, like you almost miss that itch. You're like, oh, you know, like it sounds great and it is great. You know, I mean, different parties involved. We're, we're happy with the outcome for sure. But you as a true founder, you're like, I, I kind of miss my team. Like I want to get back to the building things. That's why I'm an entrepreneur. So curious, that first M&A, what was that feeling like? Yeah, no, and I think it's a big emotional roller coaster as an entrepreneur when you get your first exit. And I do remember also one of the exciting moments is like all of a sudden they wired the money, right? And I think, I mean, that is an exciting moment when you look at your bank account and you're like, oh, wow. You, you, you call up your bank, like, are you sure this is? This? <laughs> yeah, so you get like a, you know, it gives you certainly like a brief high. And then, and I think what I remember more recently, you know, we also, we, our second company, Steelbrick, was acquired by Salesforce. And there I remember particularly a couple of days after we were acquired, like Mark Benioff invited me. He was doing a big media event. Mm -hmm. I think he got their fiscal year and he had all the press, the analysts there, you know, and, and I was a small part of the agenda, but, you know, but he said one of the exciting new things is steel brick and here's Godard, the entrepreneur behind the company. And, you know, so you get these tremendous highs at first, I think it's very exciting, you know, because also in Priggy, your whole team does well, right. And I think there's a tremendous moment and it probably lasts a few weeks of just excitement, some euphoria around, we pulled it off. And, and frankly, as right. a sales was also great about welcoming us and bringing our product to thousands of more customers to get this period of tremendous excitement. But then, yeah, usually what happens also as an entrepreneur, right? A couple months in, all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, now I have, quote unquote, just a job. Yeah, and it's a great job. Um, and like working for Salesforce, I became the GM of a business unit there and it's an amazing company. And I got to learn a lot from Mark Benioff. So that, you know, you, and you try to describe this to your friends who have been entrepreneurs are like, are you crazy? Like, why would you? <laughs> yeah, you just made a bunch of money. You're working for an amazing company. You're working for an amazing entrepreneur. Why aren't you just happy? And, you know, and then I think the reality is you kind of feel a bit flatlined, you know, because entrepreneurship is such a roller coaster of highs, lows. And, uh, you know, I think there's also, well, I think the hard thing about hard things, right, from Ben Horowitz, he talks about a market increase. I forget the exact quote, but it's kind of like entrepreneurship is like between like euphoria and despair. Yeah. You know, and, and there's no in between. And every meeting, every call, you're either euphoric or in despair, but it's this tremendous, you're tremendously alive. And then once you're working for a big company, a great company, the reality is you're like, oh, if this sales call doesn't well, it's not going to move the share price of Salesforce, right? it's a $20 billion company and mm. you know, my product, it just doesn't move the needle on the whole thing. And all of a sudden you have a very secure job. That's great. Very well paying. But I think 
for me anyway, I just miss that excitement. And that's why I always go back to it, right? Because I'm like, hey, if I'm going to work, I want that full emotional roller coaster. And, and I do think it's such a bonding experience with a team as well. And I think whether it's in business or in sports, right? But I think that whole feeling of being together in the trenches with a team and you know, trying to overcome insurmountable odds to build something, it also is such a bonding experience that I think as an entrepreneur, once you've had that, you know, it's hard to imagine anything else in your work life. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so I think you, know, you end up missing it. And like I said, that's why I've, I've always gone back. Is that kind of like, uh, curious just on that note, like, is, is that what fuels you? Not, not so much the highs. I know obviously those, those are a little bit of a thing, you know, like they, they give you reassurance more than anything and also build the credibility. They make it easier. But what is like, what is, what is your biggest motivator waking up in the morning and just doing this over and over again, coming up with new ideas. You're working on 3K now while building G2. Like to some, this is, this is, you know, crazy to be able to do it over this. It's like, you know, Usain Bolt. I mean, you're just, running a marathon as a sprinter basically yeah and i think it is just a creative desire you know probably like an artist and i'm not a great artist myself but my daughter loves painting and creating artwork right i watch her do it and she's just kind of in the zone and i do think a company is a lot like a piece of art and it's never done right it's always a work in progress and i think that's what naturally draws me to it i'm like oh i know there's all these imperfections these things i want to improve and, and i think it's that continuous like you're just never done building and right. I think that joy of creating, of building, and I, I do, you know, I'm excited every morning to dive in because there's always, you know, two or three things I really want to improve in the company, right? It could be two or three hires or a product feature we want to ship or a partnership we want to build or a customer we want to win. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always a, a next step and the creation is also never done. And so that's why I think it, you know, it does give me joy to, to just keep working on it and keep striving for that peak. And frankly, I know I'm also never going to get there. You know, there is no, ultimately, there's really no endpoint. It right. is a process of building. It is a journey that ultimately, I think, gives, gives me the joy. And, and I think I see the same in, in most entrepreneurs. Yeah, even the way you describe it, I know your background is in engineering from, uh, and I know you studied at MIT, but it, it kind of it feels like you, you look at it as an architect almost, you know, or, or from the engineering lens. Um, yeah. It's funny hearing you say that. I kind of assimilate the two together. True. And I was a mechanical engineer at MIT and I worked in a couple labs there, but I would build instrumentation, but it is a lot like in machining metal parts and it would feel the same way, right? Where you just, you want to bring your creation to life and you want to complete it. And a company is like that as well, right? It is like a, yeah, it's like an architectural piece that you have a vision for it and you want to finish, but it's also very iterative where you kind of know what you want to look like, but until you start building it, you know, you don't know exactly what it's going to look like. So then you keep, you keep tweaking it, you keep tuning it and keep trying to make it more beautiful. Yeah. You constantly make those iterations. It's funny too. Like the, the way you were talking about uh, it's, it, you know, looking at it as this kind of art, right. And you're always tweaking those, those, those gaps or adding certain features. I think one of the gaps early in, in your career, when you were, when you were starting out is, is on the sales side, right. Coming out as an engineer, sales wasn't necessarily part of that formal kind of education. You had to almost learn it, you know, as you go along, um, and it seems to be the case with a lot of founders who might be more technical in nature. Uh, curious for you, uh, and I remember you talking about at one point you just looked at, at your co-founder. You're like, let's just focus on one customer, man. Let's figure out exactly what they're looking for and really perfect that sales cycle. Um, but w- what steps did you take to really start figuring out how to sell the vision better and really be a proponent of the company? Yeah, and I, I, I do think you know, and George, earlier we were talking about that moment where we were near death. 
Mm -hmm. And yeah, Chris and I did just decide, hey, the most important thing is always the next customer. And right. when you only have 12, it's like, okay. And, and obviously we want to get to 100, but you don't get from 12 to 100 without getting to 13. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and at that time, and frankly, I, I had had a VP of sales, but you also had to let him go. And so then I, I was the VP of sales. I only had two sales reps. And then I, you know, both Chris and I very much focused on, we do Monday morning, you know, I'd run the sales call myself and like, hey, what's the next deal? And what's, what's the next step to get that next deal? And so we just got hyper-focused on that. And, and really the customer will usually also tell you, right? That's what we realized, just a lot more customer dialogue. And they'll tell you, hey, uh, I like the vision, I like the demo, but, you know, but for me, I, it has to integrate to my SAP system. So tell me how we're going to do that, right? And convince my IT person it's possible. And okay, that's the next step. That's the obstacle. Let's get that done. And then we tried to templatize it and turn it into a process. And we did ultimately build a very repeatable sales process. And then we were able to scale it, you know, where we didn't have to be on every customer call again. And I, I do think that's something most people say, right? As a founder, initially, especially if you're doing B2B, you have to be the best salesperson first. Right. And only once you can sell repeatedly, then are you really ready to, you know, hire a VP of sales and, and turn it over to somebody else. And, uh, and I did have to learn that, you know, that sales is, and now I actually believe it's very noble. It's probably like a lot of people, like when you're an engineer initially, you're like, oh, salespeople are just sleazy people. <laughs> I and, thought the same thing, man. I was in business. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but the reality is, right, you realize actually really good salespeople are just really good at listening to customers. Yeah. And, you know, kind of, and most customers have some vision, some right. improvement they want to make in their life, in their business. And then it's really just mapping your solution into their vision mm. and doing it in a way where they feel like, oh, the reward outweighs the risk. And so ultimately it is like the most important skill as an entrepreneur. It's true. And also like, I, I feel like, especially now, you know, you can't necessarily be a successful sales professional without being genuinely interested about the product or service that you're selling. Yes. Right? Like, and I think you talk a lot about this and, and obviously you reference a lot with Mark Benioff, but obviously the, right, the culture he's built um, with Salesforce. And it's like, people really believe in, in what they're doing, you know, and, and figuring out how to do that. One of the other funny moments you had was, you know, I think you're, you still do this probably, but you bring uh, other demos from outside. Uh, I think you, you probably do this in G2, but you kind of get different people at, uh, from the sales team just to listen in to maybe uneventful, you know, demos. And you're like, this is what it is listening from the outside. So when you're demoing, make it fun, right? Like make it yeah. enjoy the process. Yeah, and that's something Matt Korniak loves doing, you know, and he's become my business partner over the years. So he was our head of sales and revenue at Big Machines, also at Steelbrick. Now he's the CEO of 3Kit. Mm. But he always, at sales kickoffs, he would always bring two or three vendors, you know, they're trying to sell us some sales tools. He would have them come pitch. And exactly that being the point, and you see a lot of pitches are kind of boring, right? Like, and they're not, they don't really know their product. They're not engaging with the audience. And so that is very enlightening. And we did discover if you do a really professional sales job, and I think what you said, George, is true, which is both you're an expert at your product, but I think also equally you're good at listening to the customer and then mapping your product into the customer's environment right? And mapping it into their vision, into their solution. And if you can do those two things and you can do it with passion and with energy and make it exciting, all of a sudden you're almost invincible. Yeah. Cause very few salespeople are at that level. Yeah. Well, uh, I think in the, in the second venture with Steelbrick, like you, you definitely were, man, when you were pitching, you know, Mark, and I think you had a couple of slides and he's like, 
brother, listen, uh, I just want to see the demo. And so you're like, but wait, you know, I have like 10 more slides I want to show you. Hold on, man. <laughs> I put a lot of work into this and you end up showing the demo. And, you know, 20 minutes later, then, you know, there, there were talks about M&A. So it, it's interesting how even demos, aside from a sales conversation as a CEO, could lead to very strategic opportunities like M&A as an example, as an exit opportunity. True. And I think that listening, you know, ultimately, and probably like with someone in the stature of Mark Benioff, everyone's going to listen. But I think that's true in any sales call, right? Because you normally go in with a plan and maybe it's 12 slides, maybe it's a demo, but if the customer wants something else, you got you know, to pivot, right? You got to listen and you have to be well, you know, you have to know your own product, your own demo, your own pitch so well that you can go to whatever part of it, you know, the customer wants to see at that moment. Mm. And, and I do think it's also, and sometimes I like making the, the football analogy, you know, where, I think it's kind of like a quarterback being able to audible. Yeah. You're a Steelers and fan, right? I am. I'm a Steelers fan, but I, I did it particularly in that front. I always admired Peyton Manning. Nice. You know, it was more of a play for the Colts than the Broncos, but his ability to audible is so amazing, right? He'd always watch the line of scrimmage. He'd have a play in mind, but then he would look at a defense. The defense is moving around, right? And he would change the play on the line of scrimmage, but he and his receivers practice so much right. that, you know, they could adapt on the fly and he could change the play in a millisecond, but they had all their plays so well dialed in. And I do love that analogy for sales. Same thing, you gotta know your pitch so well, your product so well, your service so well, the customer so well that, you know, when, when the situation calls for a different play than you'd expected, you can audible on the fly and still deliver, you know, a really compelling presentation that gives the customer exactly what they want. And, uh, and that's why I do think it's really an art and I have seen many great salespeople over the years do that, right? They just practice their craft and they know their product and service so well that they can listen to the customer and audible on the fly. Yeah, it, it's, it's, I mean, even if you look at like a VP of sales at a big corp versus a startup, very two, two very different things. I know you talk about that as well. And you've had different experiences, especially in the early days. But, and I think you also said that, um, I mean, in, in your opinion, the VP of sales is probably the, the hardest job, you know, in a, in a startup. Um, give or take. So yeah. when you're looking at someone from your perspective, given, given everything that you've done and you're looking to hire this person for, for the senior mm -hmm. management team, what would be like the top two or three qualities that you're, you're usually looking for more from an EQ? I mean, I, I know technically like it depends on the role, but just like a, from, from a person to person, what, what, what intuition or feeling are you trying to get? Yeah. No, I think hiring a VP of sales is very critical. And I also believe it's very stage dependent, but in terms of, you know, your question on EQ, I do think, well, number one is a sales leader, right? They, they have to be able to win the confidence and trust of their team. You know, and so I think it's being a strong leader, someone that the sales team will respect and someone that can really inspire the sales team. Right. And I think, as you know, like sales is a very hard profession, right? Like you, you're getting told no all the time. You're under a ton of pressure to deliver numbers. Yep. It's kind of like, hey, no excuses, right? Product feature isn't there yet. Effective. Yeah. Sell around it, right? Or customers aren't happy, sell anyway, right? So it's a very, it can be a very hard, stressful job. So I think you really need a leader that can inspire the team. And that also conveys confidence in the team, you know, that, hey, when there's challenges, like, hey, we need this product feature. It's like, hey, guys, it's coming, but keep selling, you know? And I think being able to create that confidence and, I think is the most, you know, probably the most important that salespeople really want to follow this leader into battle. Mm. That's very interesting. 
Well, you also talk about, um, you know, putting together a playbook. I think that that was super interesting um, that, that you almost, as part of like you saying, you know, the quarterback calling the audible, but also if you want to scale and if you want to replicate a successful business over and over again, you need a process, right? Like you need to formalize this and you keep tweaking, you can keep adding. I think you're probably at a hundred pages right now. Um, mm -hmm. so, so are you ever going to release this, by the way? Is this something that you would ever like, you know, sell or even just offer? Like, I'm curious. <laughs> Yeah, I think you have to ask Matt Korniak. You know, he really owns the sales playbook. and That's it, yeah. It. But, but I think so. I mean, we do have some vision. We sort of have a code name for it called Go Big. Cool. And because we do love helping entrepreneurs go big, you know, because I two now we've built four ventures, really. You know, two of them we built G2 and Big Machines we built from scratch. But two of them, Steel Brick and 3Kit, we partnered with other entrepreneurs that already had a product. And so the vision around go big is how to build entrepreneurs help their business go big. Cause a lot of entrepreneurs, as you know, struggle, right? They might be stuck around a million ARR and they don't know how to make their breakthrough on their own. So we are interested long-term in sharing our playbooks, sharing our lessons learned. And now I'm also doing a bit of angel investing and helping other entrepreneurs. So I do see that, you know, probably once we achieve the, the peak with G2, I probably see that my, maybe my next chapter, is doing more, you know, coaching, sharing, mentoring, investing, and helping other entrepreneurs you know, get get to success more more quickly, more reliably than uh, you know than maybe they could without, without that advice. If if there was one page that you can that you can choose from, like let's say there's a hundred hypothetically, you get to choose one page out of that hundred to always keep with you. What would what would the title of that page say? It's a good question. And I would say if there's one thing, you know, especially in sales, it, I would say it's, it's listen and be authentic. Mm. Yeah. I think also every customer or prospective employee, you know, they can, everyone can sense BS. Especially now, man. Sense, yeah. Are you really listening to them? Yeah. And are you giving them, you know, an authentic answer? Mm, I like that. Yeah, I, I think also doesn't Salesforce because they have a sales playbook too, and they talk a lot about that as well. Um, just being like your authentic self. Um, yeah, and they have that. There's that great playbook. Uh, I think Dave Rudzitsky, You know, he was a longtime Salesforce sales leader. There's some great blog posts on it. Okay. But all the you know, there's like the top twelve lessons that Salesforce has learned. And I think the other one that immediately comes to mind about Salesforce, it's also all about team selling. Mm. They also say never go alone. And, you know, even they're like, even like, don't get too cocky, even if you're a great sales rep, like, even if you think you could just take the deal down by yourself, like, don't, you know, like, all other team members. Yeah. Introduce your boss to, you know, the VP of sales at the customer. And, you know, even Mark Benioff is still very involved in this where the largest accounts like Amazon is a big Salesforce customer and Mark will still personally go and call on Jeff Bezos. Mm. And, you know, and that's that whole idea of, Hey, sell as a team and get multiple alignments. And I think in B2B selling, that's that's so critical. Because sometimes you think you have a deal, like one sales rep, one sponsor, but all of a sudden that sponsor quits and all of a sudden you have nothing. It falls through. Yeah. yeah I think there's an ego too with, with salespeople, right? Because you're, I mean, a big, a big chunk is commission, the metrics, like you almost really want to own it from yeah. start to finish. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want anybody to help uh, along that process. I don't know if that's true for everybody, but I feel like that's, that, that might be the feeling of why they don't want anybody else involved. But so part of that growth is letting go of your ego and saying, 
Like, let's get this win for everybody. You know, I spearheaded this for sure, but this is like a team win. Yeah. Yeah. And even if I could do it on my own and maybe it's faster, you know, the long term, Frankie Wells have a better relationship with the customer. And because in B2B selling, it's always good to be multi threaded, right? To have many relationship touch points up and down the also the seniority ladder. And I think that's, I've probably never seen a company as good at that as Salesforce. Mm. You know, they really, really team sell. They also bring in product people and marketing people. And they have this whole playbook where they do, they have an executive briefing center, you know, which I believe is now in the top of that amazing Salesforce tower in San Francisco. They're also building a tower in Chicago, as you know. Yeah, on the riverfront. They will, yeah, they will bring in customers for a day and they will have, you know, people from across Salesforce build relationships, pitch to them, share different products, but also share sales strategies share HR strategies, but basically share anything about how they build their own business to, you know, help the customer succeed and also build much more multi-threaded relationships. Interesting. And I know you said you were, you were starting to dabble on, on the angel investing side. You're, you're the chairman uh, of 3Kit, which we talked about. They're doing some cool stuff. I mean, between Canada and the U.S., which is, which is awesome. Um, and they're building, uh, I guess, a virtual selling platform, right? Uh, integrating 2D, 3D, a bit of AR as well. Um, but as an angel investor, what, what trends are you following? Like, is it mostly SaaS? If you were to invest, let's say 3 million right now in a company, what would that profile look like? Yeah. And it does depend. And you know, one really hot category right now is virtual events platforms. Yeah. Did, did you see Gamer Child? I think that's the name, right? The, uh, it's a Chicago based company. Okay. It's, it's super cool. Yeah. But there's a company now called Hoppin that's just Hoppin. starting on YouTube. Yeah, nice. incredible growth. Very and cool. I talked to their founder, Johnny, but what Hoppin is building, it's basically like a virtual events venue, which in times of COVID is just super critical because even Dreamforce is going to be virtual. And I believe Salesforce is going to use this Hoppin platform. Yeah. And so that's, you know, a category right now that yeah, I'm certainly super excited about. Um, and They're awesome. Yeah, but FreeKit also, and frankly now, and one cool thing about G2 and part of reason I started the company, right? I get to talk to entrepreneurs all day long because, you know, they all list their products on G2 and G2 is a great way for them to get validation. And I did you know, really build it to scratch my own itch, if you will. Because yeah. entrepreneurs, I was frustrated with Gartner and big machines. It took us nine years to get a Gartner report. And I wanted a real-time way to get validation from my customers. And so that's why we built G2. But the beauty of it, entrepreneurs also love G2. And so I get to talk to entrepreneurs all day long. And, uh, but so now it's very organic, but also like the way I met 3Kid and Ben Houston was they were, when we were building our CPQ companies and Steelbrick and Salesforce, you know, some of our customers wanted a way to visualize products while they were configuring them. And you know, we didn't have that capability. And then as a Dreamforce one year, and uh, there was a 3Kit partner that demoed the technology to me, mm. I was blown away. And I remember it was like this 3D, I think, Caterpillar tractor, and it was like a movie. And I'm like, wow, this is just amazing. And I'd never seen anything like it. And, you know, and then, so I just, it was like, I just wanted to be part of that technology because it was so compelling, I thought. And then I met the founder, Ben Houston, who's based in Ottawa, Canada. And I know you also have Canadian roots. And he also, you know, he'd been building this technology for many years. He started out in the movie industry. Yeah. So really he was providing software tools that basically help other companies kind of do what Pixar does. You know, which is make create amazing kind of VR, AR, mm -hmm. virtual experiences, animations. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and I think Ben was like a brilliant technologist, but he was struggling a bit because frankly, movie studios, it's hard to make money. 
Yeah, because mm -hmm. like if not Disney, they tend to squeeze everybody else. And so he discovered, I think there was like a breakthrough with this WebGL where all of a sudden you could do these amazing movie-like visualizations inside a mobile phone on a browser. And all of a sudden you could really bring 3D to life to help sell products. And we'd always been in software to help sell products. And so then we decided to partner with Ben. And there we invested a lot. You know, we, myself personally, you know, invested many millions in it because we're just so excited about it. And, uh, and you know, we're really in, I can now match running the company and, and it's actually, it's going great because also in times of COVID companies now really need virtual selling because you know, we can't go into stores. And like one of the three kid customers of Taylor brands, they sell men's suits, mm -hmm. uh, like Joseph A. Bank. And, and frankly, right now they're also, those companies are in a really tough spot, but at least you can still try on a suit in a virtual sense. Right. The three kid technology does, it allows you like a VR, AR experience to try on products virtually. And it could be also furniture. You can place furniture in your room in a virtual sense. And in terms of investing, this was just one of those things where it just seemed like such an inevitable trend, you know, where in 10 years, I believe all products are going to be sold that way. And so that's why we said, wow, this is, you know, we met the right technologist also in Ben and we're just like, wow, this is kind of a no brainer, right? It's an inevitable trend and we want to help it come to life. Yeah, it's so interesting too when you were saying I'm 100% agree on, on the sort of virtual space. Um, and, and one thing I didn't realize actually is that G2 is also a curator of some of the best ideas. You know what I mean? In a, in a weird way, I know that's not the intention, but it, it kind of has like a feature of product hunt, you know, where they kind of upvote, uh, except this is what's driving it is different reviews, but you still get to see some of the best software that's out there and different ideas that are going back and forth. So I guess you always stay on top of those trends as well. And, and, and you can kind of pinpoint where, where things are heading towards. Yeah. And we have data on it. And that's a cool thing where we could see, for example, video conferencing. I think, you know, buyer interest in that category was up like 450% when COVID hit, you know, and, and obviously some of those are obvious, but still we have real data on it. You know, we can see exactly what software buyers, we have about 5 million people coming every month now to shop for software. Mm. And we can see exactly what categories, what products are trending. And I think you're right. It's, it's later stage in product hunt, you know, cause product hunt is really like you're just first launching a product. Yeah. In fact, it's also a little bit more about hype, you know, in super early stage, we're probably more at the point where, okay, how many referenceable customers do you have? It's exactly. kind of like post product market fit. And, and we do see many entrepreneurs like really using G2 to amp up their growth. Like one great example would be the sales engagement category. You know, where that's companies like Sales Loft and Outreach. Right. And, you know, also amazing entrepreneurs, but we've really helped fuel that category, fuel their growth. And you can see it, you know, where they've gone from like 10 to thousands of customer views in just a couple of years. And you can also see the buyer traffic in those categories are really surging. And so, yeah, G2 is a really fun platform in that, you know, we really get to see what's hot, right? What's surging, which products, which categories. And that makes it a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and uh, I do want to just spend maybe the last five minutes on, on, on more of the personal side, but last question on this is um, like for, for G2, I mean, do you, do you think this is the kind of last one uh, in terms of the race or I know it's a tough question to ask, but I'm just trying to, you know, get a sense from, from your perspective. I know you talked about coaching, investing. Do you think this would be the last, you know, Godard led um, venture? I mean, definitely not the last one and, you know, but in terms of where I'm the CEO, you know, really driving the day to day, I would say maybe. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, you know, operational. So I just, yeah. Uh, yeah. But frankly, I think I won't really know because 
you know, once we do reach some peak and hopefully this company we can take public, you know, and, you know, once I do step aside and take a break, I think it's always best to, you know, take a year off and really reflect. So right now I say, I don't know, but I do know what definitely is my future. I'm enjoying that, you know, with three kids where I'm the chairman and investor. And so I definitely see more of that in my future. And, uh, and then also with our teams, because you know, obviously three kid has a bunch of people that work with us and, and so also enabling and a lot of my angel investing frankly is with also former team members that are now building their own companies. And uh, mm. so I do really enjoy that. So I definitely see more of that in, in my long-term future. Love it, man. No, for sure. Hopefully we see more. Um, and then I just want to touch very quickly on the, on the personal side. I, I remember you saying like in the later stages of your career, you, you started realizing how important it was to take care more so of yourself, you know, like, waking up, even if it's going for a run, doing a bit of meditation, breathing, whatever that, that, that kind of Zen space is for you. But uh, for people who don't know you, like what's a, what's a day in the life of, of Godard Abel? Yeah. And I, I think you're right, Jordan. I, I did realize it's important to take better care of myself mm. because, you know, we talked about all the highs and lows in entrepreneurship, but my first company, my first few years was a ton of anxiety at big machines. And I had this storm cloud of worry in my forehead all the time. And it literally felt like a cloud and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I was so afraid I was gonna lose John Scully's money, my dad's money, right? And my friends from MIT who'd come to work for me, I was gonna blow up their careers. So I had so much fear and stress. And then luckily I discovered conscious leadership. I joined YPO, Young Presidents Organization. Nice. Organization I really recommend for entrepreneurs because part of they put you into a forum yeah. with entrepreneurs and my form introduced me to this leadership coach, Jim Dethmer, who espoused conscious leadership. And really it starts with just consciousness and breathing and meditation and slowing down and taking care of yourself. So that you're then in the position to be a good leader at work and in your family. And so I've really been working on that ever since over a decade now. And I still have a conscious leadership coach, Sue, and she really helps me stay present helps me become more conscious, become a better leader. And so now my day, you know, it does start every day at a minimum. I will spend an hour on working out, you know, a little bit kind of yoga-like stretching, breathing and centering myself. And that's something I, I will literally do every day of the year because mm. I've just found if I don't do that, you know, I won't feel as good the rest of the day. I'll be more anxious and I won't be in a position to be a good leader and be a good father and a good husband. Do you use any apps by any chance, like Calm or Headspace? Um, I don't use any apps, um, but I do. I like to listen to a lot of these free. Also, there's a lot of great content out there now. I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Sad Guru, for example. Yeah, yeah 100%. Uh, so I enjoy, or Eckhart, Eckhart Tolle. Yeah. And, and so sometimes I will actually listen to, they provide you know, meditations just on YouTube. So I'm not using any particular app, but I do like to you know, be inspired by some of those leaders that are all about presence and consciousness. And I also just read autobiography of a yogi. Okay. Um, which also, you know, I think I've been getting, it's kind of, it's interesting. Conscious leadership is kind of taking me down this more spiritual path. Mm. And ultimately I do believe that's what entrepreneurship is a great opportunity to do, right? To become more conscious, to grow even spiritually as a human and help others do the same. Yeah, you also, it, it's hard to remove, like when you were anxious in those early days, like it's tough to remove your identity from the performance of the startup. I think that's why you were so anxious, right? Because like if it tumbled, 
you, you kind of felt like your self-worth is tumbling, tumbling with it. Is that yeah. not the case? Yeah. Yes. Now my ego was totally attached to the company yeah. and my sense of self was totally attached to it. So all those highs and lows were totally personal. And I have, and I think that's one of the things that I've learned with consciousness is, you know, like detaching myself from it. And frankly, every day I'm going to try to do good work, but I can't always control the outcome. Mm. And I think gaining that perspective is very helpful. And I still feel the highs and lows. And I think that's also part of consciousness, conscious leadership is I think any emotion, if you really allow it and you feel it to completion, it tends to only last 60 seconds. But if you block it and you don't fully feel the emotion, then it will keep resonating inside you. And, and, you know, that could be fear and anxiety. That's what I had, you know, for the first eight to 10 years of my entrepreneurship. I just, I, you know, I just didn't let it dissipate and I didn't give myself enough presence to detach from it. Gotcha. So a lot of yoga, gym, that kind of thing on the day to day is that, do you, do you read a lot? Is that, uh, I know you were mentioning the, the biography of the yogi, but is there anything kind of uh, on the horizon right now that you're reading? Yeah, no, I'm always, uh, always reading and it does tend to be more nonfiction yeah. and you know, things that can, can help me grow. Um, actually really interesting book I'm reading right now is about forests. Oh, don't tell me. How, the, uh, isn't so, sorry. Go ahead. But I think it's called the wisdom of trees. Oh, trees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, written by a German forestry manager, and he just talks about how there's tremendous consciousness and life in the forest. Right. And otherwise, we'd probably tend to take for granted. So that's a book that I'm I'm working on right now. Nice. Yeah, I heard this. Uh, Hugh Jackman was actually the the guy who recommended it on Tim, Tim Ferriss, and he's like, Tim, if you read this book, you'll never go to a park the same way again <laughs> you're just like sitting and you're just looking at trees you know yeah. it's a little bit psychotic but uh it's a super interesting read and all of that has also led me to becoming a vegetarian oh very cool i didn't know that how, long have, you, how long have you been a few years now hmm. yeah but i think part of the heightened consciousness is frankly also like one just not wanting to harm animals and and two i feel like it's even better karma better for me physically hmm. you feel lighter i guess yeah um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm Middle Eastern originally, so like for us, a lot of our food is based around lentils, chickpeas. You know, I don't think any any Lebanese person can survive a day without hummus. <laughs> you know, yeah. so, and those uh, are now some of my favorite foods. I, I can, so I can maybe, <laughs> maybe next time we can go out in person. I hope so. Lebanese food together. Cheers to that, my friend. Well, thanks for your time, but I, I really appreciate you doing this, man. Yeah, thank you, George. It was fun. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.